This show is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Charleston Coffee Roasters. Charleston Coffee Roasters painstakingly searches the world over for the highest quality coffee beans. They bring them home to Charleston, South Carolina, where slow roasting coaxes out their unique flavor. Along with their promise of great coffee, Charleston Coffee Roasters also pledges to help our planet and local communities. Globally, they support sustainable farming practices. Locally, they partner with the South Carolina Sea Turtle Rescue Program. Visit their website, charlestoncoffeeroasters.com, and use the code COFFEEWITHFRIENDS, all lowercase, all one word, to get 20% off on all bagged coffees. She had a fascinating journey to that point. First of all, she was artistic. She was a great little artist. When she was in the second grade, third grade, uh, I think it was, she was actually identified by Franklin Lloyd Wright as a brilliant child when it came to architecture and drawing perspective. And that, that just started everything off. She had private lessons in art. She sold her art. And she thought of herself as an artist first because she was so confined. But she slowly slipped into what she always dreamed to be, and that was a writer. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. This week, we take a fascinating deep dive into a literary phenomenon, as well as the enduring legacy of a writer who so many readers credit with being their first book obsession. Of course, we're talking about V.C. Andrews, and we are so thrilled to have the author of a new biography of Ms. Andrews here, Andrew Niederman. Andrew Niederman is the author of numerous novels of suspense and terror, including Deficiency, The Baby Squad, Under Abduction, Dead Time, The Curse, In Double Jeopardy, The Dark, Surrogate Child, and The Devil's Advocate, which some of you may have heard of. It was made into a major motion picture starring Al Pacino, Keanu Reeves, and Charlize Theron. What might not be widely known is that following her death from cancer, Andrew became the ghostwriter for the phenomenon known as V.C. Andrews. There are more than 90 V.C. Andrews novels to his credit, which have sold over 107 million copies worldwide and have been translated into 25 languages. How's that for a plot twist? In fact, Publishers Weekly says of the new biography titled The Woman Beyond the Attic, the V.C. Andrews story has been hailed by Publishers Weekly, who said, combining a novelist's eye for detail with personal knowledge gleaned from his years as V.C. Andrews ghostwriter, Niederman unpacks the famed Gothic writer's notoriously private life. He scrupulously unravels mysteries that are still swirling around the novelist's life today. Fans will be 
transfixed. That's quite a quite a heap of praise there, Andrew. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, we were so excited about that. Yeah, we would agree. Yeah, the book is just fascinating. I got a copy of it and I tore through it. I tore through it as a young person who credits V.C. Andrews Flowers in the Attic as like a, a gateway drug. Uh, every part of it was so fascinating. Tell, can you give us all a, just kind of a brief overview of the book? Well, one of the purposes was exactly what you've been saying. I wanted to tie V.C. Andrews' personal life and all the events of her life in with Flowers in the Attic because throughout the 40-year history of it, it's amazing that it still sells as much as it does after 40 years. Fans have been wondering how much of the actual story was in her life. What were the events in her life that she used to make this story? And one of the things the book does, the woman behind the Beyond the Attic does, is it shows us where the story originated, how it originated, and what part of it she felt was her personal life and what was not. So much of it was uh, assumed to be her personal life. And at times she was amused by that. And at times she wanted to make sure that people understood that personally there, were no, there was no incest in her family. That, that was a big thing in Flowers in the Attic. And she wanted to make that clear. She came from a simple Southern family. Her father was in the military until a mother insisted he get out and get a job. <laughs> and they lived with her grandparents for a while. And then they started their life uh, with two brothers. She started her life with two brothers, and she was the middle child at the time. They lived in Rochester, New York, where he had a job uh, working for uh, an eyeglass and sunglass company. And then they moved back to Portsmouth, uh, where she became very famous. But not right away. Uh, the most amazing thing about V.C. Andrews is that she did not publish until she was 55 years old. And for most of us in the writing world, that seems almost incredible to believe because who would stick with it that long? But she had a fascinating journey to that point. She was, um, first of all, she was artistic, uh, artistic. She was a great little artist when she was in the second grade, third grade, uh, I think it was. She was actually identified by Franklin Lord Wright as a brilliant child when it came to architecture and drawing perspective. And that that just started everything off. She had private lessons in art. She sold her art. And she thought of herself as an artist first because she was so confined. But she slowly slipped into what she always dreamed to be, and that was a writer, you know, pub, trying hard to publish short stories like everybody. And eventually, at the age of 55, after a grueling life of being handicapped, she caught the attention of the of her agent, literary agent, who happened to be my literary agent at the time as well. And from there, the story just blossomed into an amazing production. I think Flowers in the Act, I'm pretty sure, was the fastest selling mass market original in American publishing history when it came out. It just zoomed right to the top of all the lists. Nobody anticipated that it would become the worldwide bestseller that it did. They had no idea I mean, at the time. Her whole life literally changed overnight. Once that book was published, this woman who was confined and handicapped for so many years, actually since the age of 15, 40 years, suddenly was open to the world and became a very famous American author. Everybody yes. wanted her. 
it was difficult for her to travel, but she did it. At times, she actually uh, was in a, uh, on a flatbed truck, you know, on a board to get her to places. That's how she couldn't sit up more than 40 percent, 45 percent sitting position. So it was difficult. But she just continued to push forward. And she went to book signings. She spoke to writers groups and the book continued to sell. And she went right into the sequels and everything after that is just phenomenal literary history. It really is. And I, I know, remember being young and we were passing that book around like it was such a scandal. And it was. <laughs> it was the, like, oh, did you read this? Did you read this? It was either that or Stephen King. Yeah, there, it was a forbidden novel. And actually, uh, at one point, I had the publishers put that on the new books called The Forbidden V.C. Andrews, because for a large extent of, the, of her life, that book was actually banned. You know, Flowers and Attic was banned in many parts of the, Amer- of the libraries and libraries in America. They uh, they banned the book, and I, of course, like anything else, when it's banned, it becomes more saleable. So, the best thing that can happen to you is your book gets banned. Exactly. Anybody wants to know why, and it sells more. And uh, the idiots that banned it just defeated their own purpose, uh, which was to keep people from reading Flowers in the Attic. They just encourage people to read it. So. It then began to sell everywhere in the world, and I can tell you now that there is not a publisher in the world. In other words, uh, every country has its own publishers uh, to some extent, and every country that has one publishes Flowers in the Attic, including, and this might be a little bit surprising, mainland China has taken Flowers in the Attic. Really? Of course, they do a little bit of abridgment in it, but they have published it. So I can't tell you a place in the world where it hasn't been published. Wow. That's, that's pretty fascinating that it's global. And, yeah. But what do, you, what do you attribute to the enduring legacy of it? I think the fact that she created her own genre, in a sense. Uh, they couldn't, when it first started, they didn't know whether to put it in terror, horror, general fiction, YA. Well, YA didn't really exist yet. Uh, YA meaning young adult literature. I, I attribute that to Flowers in the Attic, actually, because a whole world of new kind of novels became created out of, out of this phenomena. What is a YA and how did it get created? Uh, basically, she mastered the formula of a young person who endures adult issues. So in Flowers in the Attic, I mean, these three kids that are trapped at their teenage years of Obviously, the adult issues relate to their maturing, um, sexual maturity, their maturing as people, and the treatment by their mother and grandmother. And Virginia was always fascinated with the, the problem of why people who love each other hurt each other so much. She, those people should be ones she felt should do the best to help each other. So she was kind of fascinated with the um, that whole issue, and she started looking around her and finding that family dysfunction was not uh, something unique. It was everywhere. <laughs> and once I started, you know, I was writing novels that had some, uh, basically have that in it. It's just the difference between my novels and V.C. Andrews' uh, lie in uh, the graphics of my descriptions, uh, the fact that I dealt with violence. She... The most violent thing in any of her seven books was somebody being pushed down a stairway. That was it. And, of course, my books went into all kinds of violence. <laughs> I was once on a panel with Mary Higgins Clark, 
in New Orleans, and she did a, she was ahead of me, and she went through a description of her books, and then when it was my turn, I, I said, well, I do the same thing Mary does, except I add sex and violence. <laughs> and so it was, it was quite a, uh, a reaction to that. It was a lot of fun. But basically, you have to remember that Virginia was working out of a world of innocence, even into the age of 55. And so her descriptions, her graphics were a lot uh, more, what we call purple prose, you know, working around these things because she wasn't as into all of these terrible things that you would put in terror books. And this morning, I read an interesting difference between horror and terror, which I might share with you right now, because I think it explains V.C. Andrews a lot, very well, because she is classified in so many different places in bookstores. Mm-hmm. And I think the best definition is this. The horror is something that's beyond reality that scares us or that, that terrorizes or does damage to us. And terror is basically something real that will be frightening to you, but it's got to be real. In other words, there's no ghosts, there's no uh, vampires in that sense. There's no, none of the supernatural is basically the importance to to V.C. Andrews' novels. Even though I did do a series that involved a vampire, I did it from the point of view of the family rather than the actual vampiric lore of garlic and nighttime, all that stuff. And it was basically uh, it was a family dysfunction where the father happened to be a vampire. But the terror didn't come from that so much. So basically what Virginia did was she explored these terrifying things that happen in family life, and she basically made that into a genre in and of itself. And I picked up that and... Uh, the first series I did that was completely without Virginia's notes or anything was Dawn, which we're doing now. Uh, we're going to start producing it in May for the Lifetime Network. There are five books, but I'm going to start with the first four called the Cutler series. And it's basically the premise here is uh, a girl discovers 15 years later that her parents kidnapped her. She, these are not really her parents. Oh, so it, that, thr- that thrust uh, of that plot premise sends us off into this crazy family that runs a hotel in Virginia Beach. I used the Virginia area because that's where, uh, that's where Virginia Andrews lived. Um, she was honored in Norfolk, Virginia, in fact, the first year I started to write Virginia Andrews uh, as what they called their no- notables. That seemed logical to me that she would know that area and basically uh, that was where it took place. So the big news for you and for your listeners right now is that A&E Networks Studio has bought the VC Andrews franchise. And what this means, it took 14 months of negotiations and work, but basically I achieved it. And what it means is that the V.C. Andrews novels, which of which, uh, as you properly mentioned there, are 91 nuance, will now be in a film TV series plant. Magic. All time. <laughs> uh, so we're starting with the color series, as I just mentioned. It will be aired the following summer. And this summer we're doing uh, the TV series Flowers in the Attic, The Origins, which was the first book I wrote. Uh, Garden of Shadows, and that will tell us how it all began. And it's done in 
four two-hour segments, so it's eight hours, uh, which is a great way to do one novel because you can get so much in it and add so much to it. And this will be probably about July. We'll announce it really soon, the actual date. And it has two wonderful English actors playing the leads of Malcolm and Olivia. Okay. Uh, Malcolm is uh, Max Irons, Jeremy Irons, the actor's son. Got it. And, uh, the Olivia's played by Jemina Roper, who is a terrific actress in England. She's been in so many television and movies there. And then we have two American actors, Harry Hamlin and Kelsey Grammer. Who we may or may not have heard of, but <laughs> I was reading that earlier, and wow. The amazing thing about it was we had we did it during the COVID pandemic highlight, you know, high time, and we went to Romania to do it for partly the reason that that made it convenient and also the cost, obviously, is a big factor involved right. in shooting uh, overseas. And they had everything in Romania that was necessary. They, they had the studio system, so they had the sound systems. Everything was there. So it was easy for the English actors to get over there. And once they got over there, they had to stay at home. Uh, right, they couldn't go back and forth. Yeah, you know, who would, we could shoot their part and then let them go. But obviously, uh, Max uh, Irons and Jeremiah Roper had to stay for the entire eight hours of filming. Wow. wow. When I say eight hours of filming, though, <laughs> it's really- not eight hours. <laughs> I mean, it could take two hours to do 15 minutes. Easy, right? Yeah. So uh, I'm often asked if you enjoy being on movie sets, and I'd say no because <laughs> it's a lot of waiting. Yes. Because every time something is uh, changed and they have to redo lighting and the sun moves and all that stuff, it, it, it's a lot of waiting to get it right. So it's not an exciting place to be, believe me. No, but at the, at the end, watching it is. That, that, yeah. and I love that it's going to be kind of a mini series because, yeah. like you said, there's so much more that they can do with it, and it is the hot thing right now. Like Netflix and and Hulu and the, their series are just taking off, yeah. and everybody wants them and binges them. And yes, it'll be great. The Friends and Fiction Writers Block Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Page One Books. The Page One book subscription provides the personal touch of an indie bookstore with the delight and surprise of an online subscription service curated just for you. The literary matchmakers at Page One Books hand select books just for you based on your preferences and their knowledge. At Page One Books, you are more than an algorithm. Shop now at pageonebooks.com. That's page, the number one, books.com. Choose their three, six, or 12-month subscription plan. The gift of page one is always a custom fit. And now you can get 15% off all book subscriptions with the code FRIENDS15. Let's go back just a little bit and tell me how you actually got involved with taking on the persona. Basically, as I began explanation, I have the same agent that Virginia had. Mm-hmm. And one day at lunch, because my books, uh, especially early thrillers, had young people in them. And a couple of them are very, very much were on the borderline of being Vicente's novels, such as uh, one that was made into a film was Pin, P-I-N. 
And it was about uh, two children of a doctor who brings them up very strictly. And in his office, he has an anatomical dummy through which he throws his voice. He does that for his pediatric patients. It makes the kids feel at home. But his son, unbeknownst to him, begins to develop a relationship with that doll. And his other personality gets transformed into the doll. And that becomes uh, just about a V.C. Andrews novel in a way. So it was um, a feature film. It had Terry O'Quinn play the doctor, who was very well known uh, from television. And two wonderful young Canadian actors who did a terrific job on it. And it became a cult classic. And then I went on to write other novels with young people. And so my agent said, uh, one day at lunch, uh, I think we're going to ask you to finish a V.C. Andrews novel. And I said, what do you mean? And she explained how sick she was. And I began to study V.C. Andrews, basically style, content, material, vocabulary, everything, just the way you would do a research paper. And I was teaching creative writing at the time, so... It was a natural move for me to do that. I My first novel that I ever published was entitled Sisters, and it was from a female point of view. So I was able to do that. And all but one V.C. Andrews novel and the whole library of them is from the female point of view. And that's the way it's going to be. And that's the way it stayed. So I was able to do that. And when people ask me how come I can do that, I usually refer to Shakespeare in Love and say it's a mystery. <laughs> I can't explain it either. It's just uh, I use my wife for a lot of the technical stuff, but basically I think a writer has to be something of multi-personality to start with. To be able, right. You have to get into your characters. And once you get them, you have them created as full people, they take over your story anyway. So basically that's uh, that's my best explanation for it. And that's how I started. And nobody knew it would go on. The publisher said, well, it might go on. And everything I wrote was number one New York Times bestseller. And fans accepted it. And it went on. We're now, as I say, uh, we're in the 41st year of V.C. Andrews. It's amazing. In terms of book publishing, I would say safely that V.C. Andrews is the longest published consistently book franchise in American history. I would totally buy that. Yeah, well, you know, you have things like the Nancy Drew stories, people still read and all that. But new novels under the same authorship, same style, consistently for 41 years. Yeah, Not the others are just reprints. This is uh, original content that you're putting exactly. out. So. Yeah, and there's more coming. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So through all of this, how do you differentiate between the voice of V.C. Andrews and your own voice in your books? Is there any intermingling? Probably uh, anybody who studies writing would be able to find it. I mean, this certainly should be. But basically, as I said before, uh, I studied. She had a certain approach to everything that um, I began to master. And basically, her vocabulary was a lot different from my mine and my books. She made, I think she did better with settings in the sense that she created settings that became characters in the book. Your Very true. Characters were so tied to the setting. So, for example, Foxworth Hall and Flowers in the Attic is is basically a, it's almost a person. It's just this. It's an eerie structure that has uh, influence on the characters. The attic is so important. The downstairs is so important. It's like heaven and hell in a sense. 
what goes on upstairs in, in the attic and what goes on downstairs. And I think that that was a, a factor that she probably, probably influenced me in my own work that I would make more of settings than I ever did before. And so settings are always the important thing in, in the V.C. Andrews novels. My next, the next book is coming out in days. It's March 15th. It's called Becoming My Sister. And it's set in the movie, what we call the movie colony in Palm Springs, which is an area of the city where movie producers and directors and actors and actresses bought homes and basically formed what, and not that they deliberately did it, but it became where they went. So I think one of the newest ones is Leonardo DiCaprio's house is there. So basically it's in that area because the mother who buys this old estate owned by an old, an old film producer is in infatuated with the lives of the actors who used to celebrate parties in this house and on this estate to the extent that she she um, denies her own children the, the attention that they need in this case two girls one brilliant the other one kind of sibling rivalry but all set in this world uh, it's almost ghosty because uh, the mother believes that everything in the house has got a, a sacred sacredness to it. For example, there's a wall where actors wrote their signatures and you can't touch it. You can't do anything to smudge it, you know. And that's true, basically, though, because in Palm Springs, in this area, people have houses that were owned by Cary Grant and great actors and actresses. So they do treat it like almost like a religious place. Wow. Yeah. In that world, we have this uh, terrific sibling rivalry event and then a mystery when one of them disappears so wow well i gotta look at the cover early and it is yeah. like you know they say the cover is everything sometimes yeah. and it's like if you're walking by it in an airport that's the book i'm going to pick up it's a great cover it is they do great jobs with covers and uh, we go back and forth a little bit on it but basically they're uh, they do it they do really gallery books and pocket books in the past have always emphasized the covers and of course the early V.C. Andrews books all had these hole in the middle covers, which mm-hmm. became signature of V.C. Andrews. And in fact, when another publisher tried to do it, uh, Simon chose to sue them. And what <laughs> drove them out of doing it? Because it was the V.C. Andrews uh, insignia. Yeah. They're very expensive, so they, they, they don't do them so much anymore because of that. Because you have a, a, what do you call it, a step-back cover inside. That's a lot of artwork. You know, now, yeah, it's very expensive. Yeah, and it's very it's very iconic too. You you know what you're looking at as soon as you see it. Right. So obviously yeah. it belongs to somebody. Yeah. So what motivated you to actually tell the story in this biography? I thought at this point it's been 40 years. I thought it's time that the public, all the mysteries and all the questions that have just been confusing readers for years and the guessing had come had to come to an end and. The family's elderly, and I wanted them to have that gift of the of the biography of Virginia. And I used it, it, everything in it is real in the sense that we have her personal letters, her personal thoughts. We have the testimony of her living uh, relatives, which at this point is uh, basically a sister-in-law, 87 years old, her nephew and niece. There's an, an, an aunt who is 104 who was a mother's sister. And so her feedback on what life was like back then 
and what her mother was like as an early, you know, as a young woman was very important and very good for us to have. She's still alive, and uh, by now I'm sure she's seen the book. So, and then I had a cousin that was very close to Virginia, very, very close, best friend, and her feedback was just very, very important. So, with all that, I thought oh, I can't let it go now. I've got to do it, put everything aside, and get this done. So it's it's been out for. Um, three or four weeks and one behind beyond the attic we thought that was a good title it's a great title <laughs> yeah and because it's true she's the woman beyond the attic. and uh, even though she lived in an attic of her own caused by her illness which is a big mystery to a lot of people but basically it was a bone spur that was operated on never really done well with put in a body cast that was wrong and she became even more paralyzed and uh, that she did anything to, with all that against her is amazing. And then there was always the questions about her mother. Was her mother the grandmother in Flowers in the Attic? She, uh, I think she, she answered it yes and no, because um, her mother really had control of her life and was, I, I want to say, the best the proper word is that her mother was ashamed of her illness. <clears throat> she, she, uh, I think she felt guilty about it. And she just didn't want her daughter to be um, any kind of a freakish character out there on the porch and stuff. So she she guarded her with uh, with a lot of uh, ironclad, and that made her seem like the grandmother in the attic. But once Virginia became well known, and everybody in the world wanted to see her, her mother changed. She became her um, almost her PR agent. She took her everywhere. She escorted her to everything, and she became part of it, and she accepted her. But she never read Flowers in the Attic. That's what I was just going to say. I, I can't yeah. believe that she never read it. Yeah, and she and when she heard it was about, she was she was astonished, you know. And Virginia actually says, "I never showed my mother anything I wrote after, after that because uh, she was just, um, you know, thrown back by it." And now her mother wasn't in the early days wasn't that conservative, according to. Aunt Sis is what they call her. Yeah. She is the sister. And she describes a, a rambunctious young woman who went to naval dances and found her husband. But her, and her father forbid her to go out and all that. But she did it. But she became very conservative in her older time. And uh, it, it just didn't fit having a daughter who wrote the most shocking novel of the time because of uh, the inclusion of incest. Right. Incest. Interesting. You can get away with it in books, but you probably count on your fingers how many movies have incest in them. That's true. And it wasn't the original Flowers in the Attic. It just totally shied away from that yeah. aspect. Yeah, they didn't. They did it at all. And of course, the fans complained. The books, uh, the movie still did very well. But when Lifetime took it on, they had the courage to let the incest go the way it was in the book. And uh, they had their biggest night. Of the year with 6.1 million viewers. Wow. Wow. And from then on, they knew this was it. But for me, it was very difficult in Hollywood because for 30 years, I tried to sell these standards to studios and producers. And I was always pushed back because of the incest in front of the attic. And I would say, well, yeah, but it's not in this series. There's no incest in this. You know, right. It doesn't exist in this. And it was just oh, like the Great Wall of China to break over or something. It was really hard. 
And when we did finally break through, I had a producer that picked up this, wanted to do a wheelhouse of movies. So we got together and went around town selling. And we finally pushed through uh, with uh, Lifetime. Uh, it began the avalanche of movies that we see now. We will be airing 18 uh, movies, essentially, by the summer. Straight 18 movies. When you wow. think about it. For one network. That's pretty big. That's huge. And they're going to go on now. So I think in a few years, it'll be easily, easily say 25, 30 straight movies of one author. It's going to be it's going to be one for the books for sure. Yeah. Well, in reading the book, I really was struck by all the, the things that people imagine. There's a lot of fodder out there about the motivation of Virginia and what, where it all came from and how she came up with her stories. But the book really puts it in perspective in a way that I think not only readers can say, OK, this is how where it all came from, but also other writers can actually kind of relate to how. Your own personal thing doesn't, you don't tell your story, but these little things can be the germ of imagination. Yeah. I, I always advise young writers not to talk their story. Once you tell your story, you've used up the passion that you need to keep. So bottled up inside you that you can't wait to get back to the, in this day and age, computer to, to write it. So I, um, I keep my stories right up to the very end uh, until that, that final period completely inside myself. Nobody, I, I wouldn't even tell my wife or my family what I'm working on because uh, to me, uh, spending it is, is the worst thing you can do. Uh, once it's done, then, you know, you learn how to talk about it. Uh, in fact, I would tell your listeners that the, the technique of selling to Hollywood is in itself a different talent. If you're going to sell your story yourself, not, you know, you got an agent, but the, it, it, nobody's going to have the passion for your story that you have. Nobody. So I enjoyed going around town selling my stories to producers and studios. And basically what it amounts to is within five minutes, I would say, which is long, believe me, for a producer, you have got to get the essence of your story, the characters, where it's going to be set, what the hooks are, and why it'll make them money. And you've got to be able to do that in five minutes because after that, you're losing their attention. That's, that's a great point. And I think it's in the book where you have the sentence that hooked them about the devil's advocate becoming a movie. Yeah. I sold that on one line. It, it basically was, this is a story about a law firm in New York that represents only guilty people and never loses. <laughs> and they just sat back and <laughs> everything followed from that. You know, how, why, where, who is this? You know, and then it all just yeah. You hooked him. You hooked him. Yeah, is important. So at the end of this book, a great surprise, not not a I mean, great surprise, but it's nice to see is a never published first draft that was written by Virginia. Can you talk about including that? Yeah, I was looking for uh, something that she left, you know, basically um, she didn't have anything uh, of novel length, but she had a book that was, she was thinking about and she had done a partial on it. And I thought it'd be fun for the fans to read the partial and then come up with their own endings for it, mm -hmm. you know, based on what they had learned from reading B.C. Andrews most of their lives. So, uh, or a good part of their adult life, I should say. And uh, that just seemed to be a natural thing to do. And I also uh, was given her original uh, poems and even songs that she wrote. So I, I uh, make sure to include all that in the biography. So, 
when time someone is finished, they have the essence of who this woman was, what she was doing, and you know what her writing was like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think any reader is going to come away with this this full picture of this beloved author and um, really understand better. And it's it's just masterful how you actually pulled it all together from such different things because she's known as playing cat and mouse with reporters too. Oh yeah, yeah. She told a lot of deliberate lies just because she wasn't fond of them. To be honest with you, she she never got over the way People Magazine had depicted her in an article. Uh, with pictures that made her look cheap, like gruesome, as a handicapped person, and so it, it always seemed reporters who made that mistake. You know, they first meet her and they say, "Well, what is your sickness like?" Or, well, "How is it? How can you work being in a wheelchair?" I mean, that just put her off right away. She said, right. "I want to talk about my work. I don't want to talk about myself and my illness." And so, the best way, one of the ways in which she decided to do it was lie to them. <laughs> <laughs> so exaggerating things. And uh, at one point she described a, a surgery where the surgeon had a stroke yeah. during the surgery and cut off her hip. I mean, there was all kinds of crazy things, but I could appreciate what she was feeling. You know, she wanted to be seen as a whole person and not as a handicapped person. And she did a beautiful job of getting that across whenever she was in public. People yes, didn't concentrate on it, you know. Yeah, it's quite a story and I appreciate that yeah. you published it for sure. So, Andrew, I can't thank you enough for joining the podcast today. I knew when this idea was brought to me that I had to do it because, like so many other people, we were drawn to the scandalous nature of the V.C. Andrew books in the late 70s, and many of us have not let go <laughs> in all these years. So thank you for continuing this lineage, and I, we are so looking forward to a great deal more from you, both as V.C. Andrews and as yourself, because both are amazing. Thank you so much. And you will see a lot more. There's going to be a lot of exciting things happening. Can't wait. Can't wait. And on behalf of Mary Kay Andrews, Patty Callahan, Kristen Harmel, and Christy Woodson Harvey, thank you for tuning in for this episode. We appreciate our listeners more than we can ever say. Be sure to visit the Friends in Fiction bookshop.org page to purchase books from today's guest, as well as past guests and the Fab Four all while helping our beloved indie booksellers. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please tell a friend. Thank you to our presenting sponsors, Charleston Coffee Roasters and Page One Books for their generous support. Show our sponsors some love by following them on Facebook and Instagram and subscribing to their email newsletters. Remember, Use code COFFEEWITHFRIENDS for 20% off bagged coffees at Charleston Coffee Roasters and code FRIENDS, plural, FRIENDS15 for 15% off book subscriptions at page one. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.